Dean Baker is an economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, is the author of numerous books, and runs a blog called Beat the Press. This is Dean Baker. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I am here with Dean Baker. Uh, Dean, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, so there are a few things that have been going on, obviously, in the economy since the last time we talked uh, in 2018, COVID, uh, a number of other stories that developed out of that. Um, first thing I wanted to ask you about, though, uh, is this topic that you've written about uh, and has certainly been present all over the news is inflation. Um, I, I, I know vaguely about inflation and what it is. It, I think it has something to do with the value of money, maybe the amount of money in circulation. Uh, can can you just to frame this discussion? Can you please explain this to me, like I'm five? Like, w- what is inflation? Well, the simplest thing is it's price increases. So we're looking at you know a basket of all sorts of different goods that people buy. Uh, people buy cars, they buy gasoline, they buy milk, they buy fruit, um, they pay their rent. So we construct a basket of that. Um, we meaning the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they look at how rapidly all these different prices are going up and they tie them together. Now, it's a more complicated process worth going into because you have to say how much do you count rent, how much do you count cars? And that's a, that, that's a little tricky, not worth going into here. But the point is when we get an inflation number, a number for last year, if we go uh, from October of two, 2020 to October 2021, 6.2%. So what that is, is an averaging of all these different price increases. And we're saying that it would cost us 6.2% more to get this mix of goods and services, medical services, you know, all the other things I just listed. Um, It would cost us 6.2% more to buy that mix of goods and services in October of 2021 than it did in October of 2020. Uh, okay. And is there always like some amount of like nominal inflation going on? There usually is. You could find rare months where prices have fallen. Um, I don't think you could find a full year where they've fallen, at least not in the United States and at least not recently. So if you go back from the World War II, maybe even the, the late years of the 30s, Year over year, if you take a full year, you'd pretty much always see price increases in the United States. Now, different stories, other places. So Japan has had periods where they've had deflation. Prices have fallen. This has been the last three decades, not not by a huge amount, but by maybe a half percentage point, six or seven tenths of a percentage point. So they've seen falling prices in the United States. We have seen that, too. The start of the Great Depression. The big issue was we had rapidly falling prices. Now, important to remember, very, very different economy. You know, we're talking 29, 30, 31, very different economy, much more focused on agriculture. So a lot of the price decline in that period was that items like wheat, corn, big agricultural products, they were falling in price, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, So we have had periods of falling prices And usually it's not a good story. So again, start of the Great Depression, no one would say that was a good story that we had deflation, falling prices. The other time in the the 1870s, 80s, into the 90s, um, we also had falling prices. And that too was often seen as a time of real hardship for a lot of people, particularly farmers, because they they were seeing declines in their crop prices and that made it very difficult for them. A lot of them lost their farms in that period. So 
deflation is the opposite of inflation. And the idea we could say, okay, a high rate of inflation is bad. I think almost everyone would agree with that. The idea that somehow we'd want deflation. I don't think there's many people who would seriously argue that. Okay. And the argument that is being um, promoted uh, in across a lot of the media is that that 6.2% you mentioned, uh, this inflation that's going on, um, is the result of this huge boost in government spending over the past couple of years with trillion dollar tax cut, um, uh, trillion dollar stimulus, hundreds of billions spent on this and that. Um, is this, um, are these two things really strongly connected and how big of a problem is this? Well, I'll put it this way. The money that we put into the economy and the CARES Act back in 2020, you know, the $1,200 checks most of us got, you know, the um, PPP um, paycheck protection program that uh, supported workers' wages when they lost their jobs, the uh, supplements for unemployment insurance, originally $600 and $300 plus the unemployment insurance programs. All these things help to boost the economy. Um, and to my view, that's a great thing that, you know, we're looking today at 4.2% unemployment. We're up near 20% back when we shut down the economy in April. So we bounced back very, very quickly. And to my view, that's a great story. We put a lot of money in the economy. We protected the vast majority of people from severe hardship in, in a period where much of the economy was shut down. That, to my view, is a great story, really very impressive. Um, but did that add to inflation? Sure. I mean, if we if we still had 20% unemployment, I'm sure the inflation rate would be much lower. So putting money in people's pockets certainly added to inflationary pressures. They were able to maintain their, their buying power, in some cases even increase it and you know buy the food they need, pay their rent. Um, a lot of people bought cars. Um, so, yeah, that contributed to inflation. But in terms of how big a deal that is, it's important to look what's happened elsewhere in the world. So we had 6.2% inflation over last year in the U.S. If you look across other countries, Spain, uh, U.K., Germany, they've all had inflation rates 4 to 5%. So it wasn't something that we just did. It was something worldwide. So what you see is that the price of a lot of items has gone up a lot, not in the U.S. or not just in the U.S., I should say, but worldwide. I mean, oil just being the most obvious example. Back in uh, 220, at one point, uh, the future price of oil was negative. That meant they would pay you if you would agree to accept the barrel of oil. I forget, it was like six months in the future, you know, because there was so little demand, supply so outstripped demand, that if you would be willing to, to take the oil, they would pay you. Um, well, that obviously wasn't going to persist, at least not when you have a normal economy. So now oil is, well, it had gotten as high as $86 a barrel. That wasn't the U.S. I mean, our demand contributes to that, but that was also Europe coming back online, China, Japan, other economies sparking up again after being largely shut down. So that pushed up the price of oil. And we've seen that for a lot of other products. And then on top of that, uh, people have been hearing about the supply chain problems, that there's all these ships off the, the coast in California that can't dock because there's this big backlog. Well, that's occurring in Europe, too. Um, so it's, you know, again, I'm not going to say that the spending that was done with the CARES Act and with Biden's recovery plan, um, that contributed to that, no doubt about it. But the, it was inevitable that if you had a quick bounce back from the depths that the economy had sunk to in 220, there were going to be problems with reopening. And that's what we're seeing. And 
Okay, so it sounds like it, this uh, government spending is on some level uh, contributing to inflation, but it's not the fears of it. Um, like I've heard, and this guy is not an economist, but Michael Burry, who's became famous from being one of the, the big short uh, investors and uh, it, you know is warning along with some other hedge fund managers of hyperinflation. Uh, which seems like, uh, I guess, inflation on steroids. Uh, is that total panic? Yeah, I, th I think that's pretty whacked out. I mean, we threw a lot of money into the economy in 220 and then earlier this year. That's over. So, you know, people got their the $2,000 checks or, you know, the 600 and then 1400 back in February and um, April, I think, was when most people got those. So they got those back then. We had the unemployment insurance supplements. They were $300 a, a week in addition to regular benefits. That ended in September. A lot of uh, Republican governors ended it earlier in, in June or July. Um, the other uh, special pandemic programs, those are all over. So we threw a lot of money into the economy back in 220 and 221, but that's over. So unless we were to have some massive spending program, which I know People talk about Biden's uh, Build Back Better plan, but that, that that's not real world. I mean, so uh, in other words, that's not big money uh, that uh, we can come back to that. But unless we did something else that really, you know, threw a huge amount of spending into the economy, it's very hard to see any remotely plausible story of hyperinflation. And, you know, my expectation is a lot of the price increases that we've been seeing are going to be reversed. And you know, I mentioned oil before. Well, oil had been 85, 86 a barrel at its peak last month. It's down to about 71. Obviously, it jumps around day to day, so I can't speak what it is at this very moment, but it's around 71 a barrel. Um, if I had to take a bet, I think it'll be more likely lower a month from now than higher. Um, but in any case, it's clearly not on an upward track where it just keeps getting more and more expensive. Some of the other items that have been big in pushing up the inflation rate, cars, new and used cars. Um, new cars have gone up about 10% in price over the last year. Used cars close to 30%. Those are both really big items in, in the consumption basket I was talking about. Well, that's not a mystery. There, there was a worldwide shortage of semiconductors due to the fact that there was a fire in a major factory in Japan back earlier this year, back in the spring. So that's that that clearly that's impeded car production, which has led to these big price increases. Well, they are now producing more semiconductors. I don't think that plant is, but worldwide, we are now seeing more semiconductors. And Toyota and Ford say they're both back up to normal production levels. And I imagine other producers will be in the not distant future. So those are big price increases that I expect to see largely reversed. It's not going to be completely reversed, but I think they'll be largely reversed, meaning we'll see a fall in used car prices, a fall in new car prices. So that's not a hyperinflation story. That's the opposite. We're going to see prices, uh, in, the rate of inflation slow sharply. That's certainly my expectation. Um, so I, I, I really really can't even see a story of how you get hyperinflation. Uh, it just, it doesn't seem at all plausible to me. Mm. And, and I'm curious, because there is this um, idea that is going around, particularly on the left of uh, modern monetary theory, which um, I'm, I'm probably going to oversimplify this and people who advocate for it might uh, think I'm, I'm doing it in injustice. But basically the idea that uh, there aren't any real limits on government spending because uh, the government prints its own currency. You don't have to tie it to the value of another currency. Uh, is this 
as an economist, do you uh, buy this? Well, there's a lot of people who push different views of modern monetary theory. I know a lot of the major proponents. And, you know, I think uh, anyone could say something and have a taken out context or misspeak. I, I think the view that most of the leading proponents of it would say is that inflation is a problem. What they usually like to say is that the government isn't limited in its spending by its ability to tax. So if, you know, if Congress and Biden were to decide they wanted to spend another $5 trillion next month, well, they could just vote to spend it and they print the money so they could do that. Now, that doesn't mean you could literally spend whatever you want precisely because you have a problem with inflation. And, you know, again, the modern monetary people would agree with that. At least, you know, most of the ones I know are the leading proponents of it. They recognize that inflation can be a problem. But what they're saying isn't a problem is we don't have to worry about taxing people. So whether we tax, you know, we want to spend another $5 trillion, we don't have to tax people $5 trillion to do that. We could just go out and spend. But if the economy doesn't have the productive capacity to accommodate that, in other words, we're going to spend another $5 trillion on, you know, building hospitals, providing people with health care, free child care, whatever, put together your wish list. Well, if we don't have the ability to build those hospitals, build the schools, build the child care centers, staff them, that will lead to inflation. So I don't think they would disagree that government spending can and, and sometimes is inflationary. I think, you know, again, all the people I know, proponents of it, they would certainly agree with that. But what they what they distinguish themselves from a lot of other economists is saying that we don't have to worry about taxing to pay for it. Okay, so on that note, then, um, and, and that clears up the inflationary part of it. But why, it, I, why even bother collecting any tax besides to just um, sort of, you know, level inequality? Why bother collecting any tax if you know, let's say, they want to spend five trillion dollars on some package, um, but the amount that they've collected in tax revenue is a trillion dollars? Okay, well, wouldn't that be the same as if they collected zero dollars and spent four trillion? You see what I mean? Like, why not just eliminate taxes at that point? Well, you know, I, the argument they would say is that we precisely because of inflation. So, if we want to spend this huge sum of money, we're putting a lot of demand into the economy. Taxes pulls money out of the economy and reduces demand. So, if we're all paying another. 2,000 a year, 3,000 a year, 4,000 a year in taxes, we have less money to spend as individuals. So we're going to be um, paying less and we'll get a smaller apartment, you know, we'll pay less in rent, we'll less likely to buy a car, uh, maybe we'll eat out less often. So we're going to spend less money on a lot of things. So what taxes do is it reduce, they reduce demand in the economy, in effect, leaving room for the government to spend. So it's not that we need the money. It's not that the federal government needs the money. But the idea is that if it didn't tax, if we just said tomorrow, okay, no more taxes, well, all of us have more money in our pockets, so we're going to be spending more. That would create more demand in the economy, and we're more likely then to have a problem with inflation. I see. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, we're ha- it seems like we have this sort of weird whiplash uh, in the economy where we open it up, close it, open it again. Um, obviously, these these openings and uh, closings have been less dramatic than at like the very beginning. Um, but uh, this seems to be sort of a novel economic event. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Um, but do we know what, what the long-term impacts of, of that's going to be on uh, any number of measures, consumer spending, business? It's spending? a real good question. And, you know, what people have tried to look back to, of course, we had a worldwide pandemic in 2000, 2019, the Spanish flu. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to make extrapolations from that. The economy was hugely different. It hit different places, both within countries and between countries at different times. And of course, our data is not that good. So we don't have a lot we could look back on that's really close to comparable. So it really, we're kind of shooting in the dark. And there are, there are some things we can say we can see. I mean, we are obviously businesses, uh, individuals adopted different patterns of, of consumption, different ways of doing business during the pandemic. So just to give some obvious examples, um, we're doing Zoom now. There's a lot of meetings, you know, I'm sure you're in the same story. A lot of meetings that are taking place around the country now that are over Zoom, which you go back pre-pandemic, people have been meeting in person. They've been flying to New York or Boston or wherever else at some meeting, a business meeting or academic meeting, whatever it might be. So we have a lot more activities that are taking place remotely over Zoom. Um, similar vein, uh, tele, uh, telemedicine. Uh, my wife had, uh, she benefited from enormously because she had to see a specialist or talk to a specialist who's halfway across the country. So pre-pandemic, uh, she would have had to fly out there. Um, as it was, uh, she had a consultation over, you know, over Zoom. Um, so we're, you know, I'm sure we're going to see much of that continue. Now, obviously, not as much as during the pandemic when you actually do have the option to fly. You know, we could, people could do that now. But uh, a lot of that will be a permanent change. Um, one of the other areas, uh, more mundane, perhaps, um, big increase in takeout orders from restaurants. So uh, during the peak of the pandemic, of course, no one could eat inside in a restaurant. Now people are to some extent. But if you look at sales in restaurants, they're actually above the pre-pandemic level. So restaurants actually have, they're doing more business today than they did back in February of 2020. Um, and clearly much of that is uh, people are, are doing takeout orders. So uh, that my guess is will likely continue. I mean, people will go to restaurants and they are going to restaurants, but I bet we'll see more takeout orders. So I think we're going to see a lot of things like that. Um, you know, I teach part-time uh, with Zoom classes. Um, again, that was something you did have uh, um, uh, internet classes before the pandemic, but, you know, certainly a lot more in the pandemic and I'm sure we will have, uh, that will continue. Um, so I think we are going to see a lot of permanent changes like that to my view, mostly for the better, because, again, we're going to have the option. I mean, if people want to have a conference and they want to meet in person in L.A. or New York or Boston, they could do that. But they're also going to have the option to, to have that done remotely through some sort of uh, Zoom or Internet session. My view, that's all for the good. Fair enough. Um, I, I know you're not a, a Wall Street stock analyst, um, but I did want to ask you about the stock market and the fact that it is ascending to record highs, even as, um, and I mean, maybe you have a different opinion, but it seems like COVID has not finished uh, wreaking its havoc on the economy. Um, is, is there something weird going on in the stock market right now? Are we due for a crash? Um, the the Again, the Michael Burry comparison when, when he was talking about hyperinflation is, you know, the 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 sign was that you would get into an elevator and the guy manning the elevator was telling you about his stock picks for the week. And now we have, you know, all kinds of, you know, ordinary Joes 
and Jane's um, speculating in all these uh, crazy financial instruments. And it, it, is there something bizarre going on right now or no? There's a few things going on there. Um, first off, we do have very low interest rates. And in general, that that's good for stock prices. So 10-year treasury bonds, last I looked, it was about 1.5%. That's a, that's a very, very low interest rate. Before the pandemic, it was somewhere close to 3%. And even that's historically a low rate. So we've had very low interest rates, which, which tends to boost stock prices. Um, secondly, you know, in terms of how much damage COVID's going to do to the economy going forward, shooting in the dark, I'm not an epidemiologist, I don't think it's going to be that much. I mean, I think we're, we're pretty much back to normal, not 100%, obviously, as people who still aren't working because of the pandemic, uh, particularly people who have health issues or some of their family has health issues. But that number's dropped. It's around 1.3 million. That's not trivial, but we have a labor force of 160 million. So it's about eight-tenths of a percent of the labor force. So um, so I think in most areas, we're, we're getting pretty close to normal. Now, again, I don't have a crystal ball that tells me how the pandemic's going to proceed going forward. But the, my best guess is that I think we're, we're largely under control. And I've been you know, do, reading what I can. I, again, no expert here, but reading what I can about the Omicron uh, variant. And clearly, that's much more contagious. I mean, that's spreading like crazy. But all the reports I've been seeing, you know, again, non-expert, is that it doesn't seem to be anywhere near as serious as the Delta. So you aren't seeing hospitals flooded in South Africa or other places where it's shown up. And the people that do come to hospitals generally don't seem to be anywhere nearly uh, as seriously ill as people who showed up with Delta. They're not on oxygen. They're not ending up in ICUs. So my guess is that we're far and away through the worst and we aren't going to see major disruptions going forward. Um, now, the other thing to consider with the stock market, uh, and, you know, people often forget this, and I like to beat them up over it, stock market's looking at profits. It's looking at corporate profits. Uh, are, are, if you're willing to pay more for Microsoft stock, it's presumably because you think its profits are going to be higher in the future. It's not because you're not asking about the economy. I mean, you're asking about the economy insofar as it affects Microsoft's profits. But that's what determines the, the, the stock price of Microsoft. How much, what do you think its profits are going to look like? Well, one of the things that's happened, this is directly related to the issue of inflation, corporate profits has, have risen a lot this year. So the inflation that we've seen to a substantial extent is a result of higher corporate profits that I was mentioning oil earlier. Well, high oil prices, well, that's higher profits for the oil industry because what's going on is in many cases that you have companies that could produce oil profitably at 20 30 $40 a barrel. They were selling it for over 80 so that's that's a story of higher profits. So insofar as companies are seeing higher profits, it's not surprising that their stock price would go up. Now, going forward, I would be concerned. I mean, not that I think this is a bad thing for the economy, but if you're talking about putting a lot of money in the stock market, I don't think this increase in profits is going to persist, which doesn't mean that their profits are going to collapse. But again, taking the price of oil is at 85, 86 a barrel. It's at 70 now. Let's say it goes to 60 a lot lower profits for the oil industry. And I think that'll be true in a lot of sectors. So it wouldn't surprise me that we will see lower profits, you know, let's say in 222, 223, than what we're seeing this year, which will mean a lower, probably mean a lower stock market, which is not a crash. I mean, I'm not 
envisioning the sort of uh, crash in the market that we had in 2008, 2009. But it certainly wouldn't surprise me if we're having this conversation a year from now that we're looking at a stock market that's, say, 10 or 15% lower. I'm curious, uh, on a personal level, you, I remember last time we talked, um, you, you were one of the, uh, the few sort of economists ringing the alarm bell before the uh, housing crash in uh, 2007, 2008. Um, do you ever consider just, just packing up the, the economist game and, and becoming a, you know, a trader on Wall Street? I mean, it sounds like you have plenty of knowledge that a lot of these people um, are sorely lacking. I suppose I've casually given a thought. Um, I know I remember once I was on Twitter and some group of, uh, I gather they were stock investors. They were uh, trashing me because I didn't put my money where my mouth was. And I said jokingly that, well, I did sell my condo, <laughs> which, which is true, yeah. actually, I did. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, you have priorities. So I, I, I've always figured, yeah, I could probably try to do that. And I'd like to think if I did that, I'd succeed and make a lot of money, which I guess I could do useful things with. But I like to think I'm doing more useful things now. Maybe that's not true. But, um, you know, in terms of uh, writing about the economy and, uh, you know, writing on policy issues, I, I'd like to think that that's more useful than if I were to make, you know, I don't know, 10, 20. I don't know. I could do that. But let's hypothesize I could and then, you know, try to give that to good causes. Um, I, I'd like to think what I'm doing now is more useful. Fair enough. Um, yeah, no, I, I, and I think so. There are plenty of uh, people in that game anyway. Um, and one of the things, speaking of those policy issues that you had been writing about, um, you, you've been writing about for some time, but is, uh, has renewed relevance with uh, the pandemic and the vaccines are these uh, patent protection, um, where uh, it, w one of the things that you've done uh, on this issue really educate me is show how you know, patent protection with pharmaceuticals is really not um, a great incentive for, uh, you know, creating new drugs. Um, and you have some strong feelings on the patent protection granted to the vaccines. Um, can you describe uh, maybe why that should be waived and sort of like the incentives around that and um, how we can maintain innovation there? Yeah, so I'm not a big fan, to put mildly, of patent protection with prescription drugs in general. But in the context of pandemic, I think it's been particularly disastrous because what we would have liked to have seen was vaccines. I mean, we'd also like the tests and treatments as well, but particularly the vaccines distributed as widely and as quickly as possible throughout the world. And to do so, the, the patent, of course, just to be clear for everyone, patent's a monopoly. It's a government-granted monopoly. And we tell, uh, tell people that, you know, if, you, if you're producing Moderna's uh, vaccine without their authorization, um, we'll, we, you could be arrested. And that's a little bit shorthand because what would actually happen is Moderna would sue you for violating their patent. If you continue to violate the patent, then you could be arrested for, for violating a court order. You know that, but in any case, the point is we give them a legal monopoly that allows them to both charge more and also limit the production. And what I argued uh, early on in the, the pandemic was what we should be looking to do is pool our knowledge with um, all the, you know, basically the scientific expertise that we have in, in Europe, in uh, Latin America, China, everywhere, 
and try to develop as many vaccines as quickly as possible and distribute them as quickly as possible. So you're not only making the knowledge of the vaccine freely available, but also the production techniques. I know Moderna and Pfizer have been saying, oh, we have these very sophisticated production techniques and no one knows how to do it. And go, fine, share that information, you know, and um, we want everyone in the world who has the ability to produce these vaccines to be doing that as quickly as possible. And instead, we went this opposite path that very much constrained our ability to get the world vaccinated. And it's still the case, particularly in the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, that a relatively small share of the population, I don't know what the figures today, but I think it's around 15, 20% has been vaccinated. And of course that leaves the opportunity for the virus to, to spread and to mutate as it has. Um, so we had a clear interest in getting the vaccines out. And again, that also applies to tests and treatments as quickly as possible. And we didn't do that. And, you know, again, coming back to the issue of incentives, I always uh, get into arguments with people, well, who would do this if they didn't get packed? And I go, well, we would pay them. And in case of um, certainly Moderna, we did pay them. We paid them right up front. We paid them $500 million to develop their, their vaccine and then another 500 million to test it, uh, to do the, the clinical tests that allowed the FDA to approve it. So we paid them up front. You don't have to pay them twice. And that's in effect what we're doing by paying them to develop and test the vaccine and then giving them a patent monopoly so that they could charge a much higher price. And it's not just that we're giving them a lot of money, which we are. I mean, there's several Moderna billionaires that weren't, uh, weren't billionaires before the, pre before the pandemic. Um, but more importantly, we're not getting the, the vaccine distributed as widely as we could have, which certainly should have been our number one priority in dealing with the pandemic. Definitely. And as this, um, you know, we're having this sort of larger conversation about how the pandemic has affected the economy. Um, one of sort of the um, phenomenons that's been taking place, and I, I want to ask, are you familiar with the anti-work movement? I certainly I haven't heard of it by that name. So okay, I, there, there's it's um, even if you haven't, there are questions that it raises that um, I think you'll be able to speak to. Um, basically, there, there's a bunch of people online. It, it's a Reddit board, um, and it's gotten some attention in like Bloomberg and the Financial Times, you know, parts of the business press, um, where it's a bunch of basically working class people. Um, they're posting their job resignations, and they're kind of flexing this sort of newfound power that uh, labor has in the market today, uh, at least relative to the past. Um, and you've written about this as well, where the low, income, low and middle income um, people have seen their wages risen uh, since the start of the pandemic. So uh, f first off, why is that? Um, what is going on there? So this is, again, this reopening story. So we have all this demand in the economy suddenly, and businesses, in a lot, a lot of cases, uh, you had businesses, of course, that closed in the pandemic, but now suddenly they're seeing all this additional demand and they're trying to fill it at the same time that not everyone's come back to the workforce. So I mentioned before that we still have, you know, something like 1.3 million people who say they aren't working because of the pandemic, that, that's directly because of the pandemic, but there's several million more that, you know, haven't come back in a labor force. And, you know, we're arguing, we meaning economists, as to whether they're likely to come back in the future. 
but they haven't come back. And my, my explanation, others have different ones, is that a lot of them have some money saved up from the pandemic, that they got the uh, $2,000 checks in uh, February and April. Uh, some of them might have been unemployed. A lot of people were actually getting more money on unemployment insurance with $300 supplements than they got from working working their previous jobs. If they had a low-paid job, maybe they were only working $20, $25 a week, they probably came out better from uh, from the unemployment benefits. Plus, they didn't have to work-related expenses. They have to pay for their bus fare or you know, to drive a car to work every day. Um, so, so they saved on work-related expenses. So you have a lot of people that have money in the bank that didn't have it there before the pandemic, and that's allowing them to be more choosy about their jobs. So many of them didn't like the job they were at. Their boss was a jerk. Uh, the, the customers were jerks in many cases. So they're saying, okay, I'm going to take some time and look for a job that maybe not a great job, but one that's better than the one I had previously. So I think that's the story we're seeing. And to my view, that's really kind of a great story. I mean, it's great that we, a lot of people that you know, again, disproportionately at the bottom end of the labor market, that they're getting some opportunities, some freedom that they haven't had in many cases for decades. Well, these workers may not have been in the workforce for decades, but workers in that position hadn't seen for decades. So that's a really good picture. And, you know, again, some people talk about it as a bad thing. I don't see it that way. I think it's overwhelmingly positive. And, and is that when people talk about the labor shortage, is that basically what's going on? People no longer having to work um, or settle for terrible pay? Yeah. And just to be clear, I don't think that you're going to see many of these people out of the labor force, say a year from now, what, you know, what, what, what's happened with the pandemic checks, the unemployment benefits, they have more freedom to be choosy, but that doesn't mean that they could just say, Oh, you know, I got all this money in the bank. I'm not going to work anymore. It's, it's, it gives them some freedom they didn't have previously. And, you know, again, that's a great thing. But I don't think it's going to mean that they, they, they say, oh, I don't have to work anymore because the reality is they almost certainly are going to have to work to pay their bills. Fair enough. Um, the, this, so on, on that note, it sounds like this scenario um, and maybe this sort of newfound power um, of labor is not going to last. Is that true? Well, I don't think it's the last to the extent it has, but I think what we would, you know, again, this is somewhat wishful thinking. We'll see how it turns out. What I'm hoping is that we're going to see changes that will likely be permanent. So if you have a situation where, you, you know, you have a lot of bad bosses, so um, the bad bosses can't attract workers. So those businesses that have bad bosses, they're either going to fire the boss or if the boss owns the business, the business will go out of business. Um and, you know, you'll be left with bosses that realize they have to treat their workers with some respect. And that could be enduring because it's, it's kind of hard, you know, if you got in the habit that uh, you're respectful of your workers, you know, they ask for things. Oh, I have to uh, leave 10 minutes early today because I have to pick up my kid from childcare or something like that. Well, that's the sort of thing a, a decent boss, a normal person would say fine, you know, but if you have a jerk who's a boss, they're going to go, no, you're supposed to work till five o'clock. You're going to be here till five o'clock or you're, you lost your job. Um, so hopefully that will be a change that will be enduring, um, but all up for grabs. And as I say, uh, partly that could be wishful thinking on my part. I uh, will find out down the road whether that turns out to be right, but that's certainly my hope. Well, on that hopeful note, um, before we go here. Uh, how can people find you? Uh, you have a blog, Twitter. Um, w what's the name of your site again? 
Yeah, well, my blog is Beat the Press, and you can find all my writing at Beat the Press or um, other items on our websites, uh, CEPR.net, Center for Economic and Policy Research, so our website, CEPR.net. And I also tweet at Dean Baker 13 Excellent. Uh, Dean, thank you once again for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me on, and sorry about the uh, technical problems. <laughs> no worries. Happens. Alrighty. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you to Dean Baker, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.